Talking Inclusion with Stephen Copsey. Hello and a very warm welcome to our Inclusive Employers podcast, Talking Inclusion with. I'm Stephen Copsey and today we're going to be talking about inclusion in sport. I'm joined by Anita Sante, who has played football for England and currently plays for Aston Villa in the FA's Women's Super League. Hi Anita. Hi Stephen. And James Ledger who was a Commonwealth Games para sprinter and represented Wales in the T12 100 metres at the Commonwealth Games. Hi Stephen, how are you? Good, thank you. I'm also joined by our very own Michelle Daltrey, senior consultant here at Inclusive Employers and who herself has many sporting achievements, including being a former hockey international. Hi Michelle. Hey Steve, how are you doing? At Inclusive Employers, we work with sporting organisations like Sport England, UK Sport, British Cycling, to name a few, to support the development of genuinely inclusive cultures, both internally and out on the field of play. So we thought today would be a really great chance to share our experience of inclusion in sport from both a personal and organisational perspective. We'll also look at the concept of community in sport. What does it look like? How does it feel? And what can we do to leverage that community to further drive inclusion in sport? There'll also be a bit of a retrospective on 2020. What effect has COVID had on the sporting world over the last 12 months? So Anita, let's start with you. Can you tell us a bit about your journey as a footballer? Um, How did you get into the sport? And how have your gender, race and sexual orientation had an impact on your career? Well, Stephen, I started playing at a really early age, around six, seven in my local estate. And, um, you know, with lots of kids from different backgrounds, different ages, you know, different cultures, in fact. So for me, football always felt like that inclusive space for me to express myself. And, you know, I largely played with boys um, and they accepted me. They didn't really talk about my gender or question it. And that was sort of my first entry point into football. So for me, I always thought of football as this open space where everyone can play and participate and then yeah it just carried on my passion and I got into the Arsenal youth set up a center of excellence and kind of my football career took off from there but at the whole time I never really saw it as a career as such you know and you didn't have those visible role models on tv or in broadcasting like we do today to, to show that how inclusive it can be I think we're still got work to do in that area. But for me, I I think I was fortunate that my race, you know, wasn't a barrier. But of course, gender has always been a barrier uh, for a lot of girls across the country because simply the resources, the investment and the accessibility hasn't been there consistently throughout the country. And it's still something that, you know, we know more work needs to be done. So that representation can grow because even now when I look at, you know, lots of teams in my division, top league in FAWSL, and even the national team, it's not very diverse in terms of race, at least. And, you know, perhaps covering religion and, you know, sexuality for me wasn't something I came out and spoke about early on in my career when I was a young player. You know, you go through your own challenges and journey of self-identity. Um, it's only until I got more confident and as, as an adult and, and trusted people around me to really do that. You mentioned the whole... Um, community aspect of going out on the streets, playing with the, with other kids, you know, actually feeling that sport was incredibly inclusive for you. Do you think from a geographical perspective, growing up where you did really helped with that? And do you think there's something to be said about 
sport in cities versus sport in rural situations. Do you think there's maybe something from an, an inclusion perspective that we need to work on there for the sector? Yeah, that's a really good point. I think um, inner cities, of course, you know, growing up in a flat, for example, you have to seek out outdoor space, you know, whether that be in your area or a park. And fortunate for me, there was lots of other kids in my area that we could, you know, spend time with and socialize and play football. Um, And that's how we came together. And through them, I'd find out about the local social clubs or the football clubs and the, you know, for the boys that I could go along to sometimes, but without them and without that space, um, I don't think that would have happened. And I do think that the landscape is changing. Like you're, you're seeing less kids, I think, from inner cities get access to some of the bigger, more established clubs, especially in London, because so many of their um, training grounds are uh, based out in the suburbs or in rural areas, which is much more challenging for kids who don't have the support of their family or friends or, you know, just a, an adult that can can help them get to training sessions and games. So, um yeah, unfortunately, I do think that's a really critical area for um, the game as it stands right now. James, a similar question to you. Um, can you tell us a bit about your journey, how how you got into your sports and um, maybe give us a bit of information about your visual impairment too? Yeah, of course. Um, so I was born with a condition called bilateral coloboma and nystagmus. So in a nutshell, that's kind of left me with just under 5% total vision. Um, my kind of sporting journeys. It's a bit bit strange. I, f- I feel like my, my true start sporting journey didn't start until I was about 15, 16. Like Anita, actually, I, I, I played football um, from five, six years old. And for me, it was simply a way of fitting in uh, with the group. Um, I went to a non-disability school and my parents have kind of always pushed me to almost like trial and error and not kind of cotton wool me because the world isn't a vision impaired friendly place. So you have to learn, you have to adapt to your surroundings. So I played football from a very young age. I wasn't very good, but for me, it was okay. I was happy to sit on the bench just because I was a part, felt like I was part of a team. If I did play, I almost didn't want to be seen as doing anything good or don't want to be seen as doing anything bad. I just wanted to kind of blend into the background and kind of not be seen as the boy who can't see in a way. And I was getting sick of people chipping the ball over my head and running past me. So I spoke to my dad and I was like, look, how can I get better? Because I've always had that in me to be really competitive and really kind of wanting to be the best I can be at something. And I said, well, why don't I just get a bit faster? So this was years on. And so from about 14, 15, I went to my local athletics club, Swansea Harriers. And at this point, I heard nothing about disability sport, para sport, didn't know anything, didn't have any friends with a disability, nothing. And I did Swansea Harris for a little bit and somebody mentioned to me, you know, you know there is specific athletics for for people with a disability. And I was like, at first I was a bit hesitant because, you know, I spent kind of all my early years really trying to hide who I was as a, as a person and hide my disability. And my dad just said, why don't we just give it a go? You know, it's no harm. You want to get faster. So let's just, it's extra training. So we went to the Indoor Athletic Center in Cardiff Met uh, University, uh, UIC as it was back then, and went to the Disability Sport Wales Talent Identification Day. 
I don't want to sound musical here, but it was like a whole new world. <laughs> um, it was a completely different new way of seeing things for me because like I, I was meeting people with visual impairment. I was meeting people with other disabilities and it was completely, completely bizarre because I'd never been open to this before. And I met one of my closest friends now and one of my best friends who is visually impaired, James Ball, who is a paracyclist. And I think, no, because we have such a common common life, I guess, we're, we'll always be extremely good friends because of the similarities we have. So that was about 14, 15. So that's when I think my true sporting journey began and I come out of my shell. I started to become confident and I, I stopped football and kind of realized that athletics is the way forward for me. Mm-hmm. I, I only had to rely on myself. Um, I didn't feel the pressure of others judging me for making a mistake because I had a disability. And I thought, you know, athletics is the, is the place where I could shine and really, I guess, become obsessed with being the best I could possibly be. And yeah, so 16 onwards, that, that was, that was me. And, you know, sport has given me so much more than just sport, like is allowed me to be confident enough to go to university, live independently and actually become comfortable with who I am. And, you know, I feel like that was until I was halfway through university that I could actually say that, yeah, I'm, I'm proud to have a disability and I'm proud that it's given me the opportunity to, to represent my country and, and, and travel the world. So it's been a bit of a roller coaster and, and been quite emotionally challenging from my young years and really just wanting to fit in and, and be normal, whatever normal is, to try and to educate people, to, to speak out about my disability and and really be the best I can possibly be. You mentioned, you know, maybe not being aware of uh, para sport, of disability in sport. Do you think there's maybe too much of a focus on that straight, white, male, non-disabled narrative within the sporting world? And do you think there's anything more that we can be doing to expand that viewpoint? I think for me, like this was all pre London 2012. So there was no real platform for power sports. The Paralympic Games was rarely shown on TV. You know, I was always watching the Olympic side because that was a really the only accessible thing to watch on TV. It seemed that was the only thing that was on. So I think, and me being me trying to, trying to, fit into to normal society, then I kind of shut myself off from, from anything to do with para sports, I guess. So mm-hmm. now post London, I think there's so much more now awareness about disability sport and, you know, having people on, you know, big TV programs like Holly Arnold on I'm a Celebrity uh, and Johnny Peacock on, on Strictly Come Dancing, yeah. people a seeing and people are able to relate to people on TV with a disability. And I think having these, creating these role models is only going to inspire the next generation. And I, I hope, you know, if I was a five, six year old, you know, back then, I hope I could see these people on the TV and thinking, yeah, they have a disability, but they're still, they're comfortable, they're confident in, with who they are. And I think that would give me the strength and confidence to, to be the same. Anita, a s- similar question to you, you know, that representation or uh, when it comes to women's sport, that focus on male sport uh, with often women's sport feeling like the second choice. 
why do we think that is? And what can we do to really improve that image? I know we've seen a lot of improvement over the last uh, 18 uh, months, two years, but what more can we do? What more can we as a a society do to, to move that forward? Yeah, well, I mean, to answer your first question, I think that that narrative has been considered the norm for such a long time and everything is pitted against that, you know, as <laughs> as others. So that that's the first part that, you know, we need to really adjust mm-hmm. to to really say that, you know, sport is for everyone, regardless of gender, race, sexuality. And and also, you know, the, the amount of space percentage wise that white male sports t- takes up in broadcasting in print publishing in in all of these areas is what people see and they get the most exposure to so if we can shift that focus and try to reach for more equality across you know sports with representation across gender as well we might start to bridge some of those gaps um, and also you know provide the role models that James is talking about that lots of different people can relate to because it is about diversifying the experiences as well for people. And, you know, if you've getting the same types of people, the same kinds of representation, you're really only appealing to one demographic of people as well. So I think that's the most important thing, you know, giving athletes and people the opportunity to utilize these platforms and garner a wider audience as well. And, and, and once we start to see those shifts, I think hopefully we will see the improvement. But like I always say, it starts internally first. You know, if you are at a newspaper or a TV station and your own in-house setup isn't representative or diverse, you're probably going to find it hard to come up with the right ideas and the right solutions to progress the exposure of sport and, and really give everybody the equal opportunities that we, we talk about often. That actually is a great point to bring Michelle on here, you know, thinking about that internal focus. Um, Michelle, can you give us a bit of an overview on what the uh, Inclusive Employers Sport Team are working on, on what you work on and how we are helping sporting organisations to develop more inclusive cultures? So at Inclusive Employers, our our main focus or my main focus is, is looking at how we can support the sports sector to understand what inclusion really means and to support the development of genuinely inclusive structures. So, you know, Anita and James have both found their way through the system and had to push up against barriers all the way through, but have still been able to do that. But we know that that isn't necessarily the the experience for everybody, that sometimes those barriers are just too big or just too frequent to be able to even be bothered having to do that. You know, it's just another thing that you've got to fight and that sometimes is too much for people. So the ambition of our inclusive sport um, programs is to give people the tools to improve diversity but also you know regardless of who you are or what your background is to be an ally and an advocate for inclusion so you know there's a lot of stuff, stuff systemically within the sport sector that needs an awful lot of work and there are some exceptional role models and athletes out there but we've got to fix the system as well as kind of raising up the voices of those people within programs because otherwise all we're going to do is give people a kind of perception that you can be involved that isn't really there. So there's kind of two two elements to the work. I think, you know, matching the need to be more diverse with having genuinely inclusive systems, and, and that's very much our role. 
So now we're going to talk about the, the concept of sport as a community, bringing people together, uh, eliminating biases, thinking about being part of a team and how that can help to promote inclusion. James, thinking about sport as a real bringer together of communities, as Anita mentioned earlier, how do we think that being part of a team, being part of a certain sport brings people together? Does it help to eliminate discrimination? Does it help to eliminate those biases? Does it expose you to more people? Does it open your mind? Do you think that being part of a sport has helped to eliminate some of those biases with people who have been partaking in that sport? Absolutely. I think, you know, being a part of the Disability Sport Wales team um, over the years, I think me personally, I've, I've kind of changed dramatically in my thought process and being around people with a disability has, has really inspired me and, and helped me to become comfortable with who I am. And I think more recent years, I think we're pretty lucky in athletics. Like we often cross paths. We often train alongside non-disability athletes. I've actually become even confident enough now to join a group where I, I'm the only person with a disability. And I think, as I said, we're pretty lucky in athletics. People are pretty open and they, people, we often see people training, you know, every day. And I think guys with non-disabilities seeing people, I think maybe the perception was before that maybe people with a disability didn't train as hard or, or the standards weren't as good. But now, like, is you can start really seeing that people's perceptions of para sport is completely changing. I think London was such a good thing for that in terms of not just other athletes, but the general public. I think London 2012 went from the people looking at the para sport and looking like, ah, look at them participating. No, that's really good to now thinking, wow, like, look what they're doing. Look how fast he's running. Look how far he's throwing. Look how far he's jumping. It's changed from that sympathetic kind of event now where I think people are really appreciating the power of power sport and how much has come on and how much the standard um, is so good now. And, and we have to train like anyone else, you know, and I think for para athletes, like that's all we want to do. That's all we want to strive is, is, is to be our equivalent to our counterparts in the, in the Olympic side. So I think us demonstrating this and, and training as hard as we do has really kind of changed that perception from the general public and non-disability athletes as well. And I, I think that's really brought, especially in the, I guess the athletics community is really brought us all together to really appreciate what is capable and what is possible, even if you have a disability. Anita, from a similar perspective, you know, being part of a, a football team, that's obviously going to increase the opportunities for banter, for discussing things that actually, you know, you, you might be more comfortable to talk about with that specific group of people. Um, has it also been a great opportunity to try and talk about some of those biases, those discriminations, you know, particularly from a, a football perspective? There's a, been a massive focus on racism in the sport over the last two years. How do those conversations go and how can we keep talking about them? Yeah, I think from my perspective, I don't, I wouldn't say it's easier always. It really does depend on the group of people you're surrounded by and who you trust in that environment. You know, I feel like I've been fortunate enough to be in the game 
a long time and it and experienced a lot, both playing in the UK and playing abroad. You know, I spent six years in Sweden, three years in America. So I came across so many different players and athletes from all over the world. And it just brought in my world, you know, my knowledge as well of other people, their cultures and, and you know, what they might need in terms of support, especially if, say, English is the dominant language and, you know, players need your help and maybe they are dealing with, you know, gender identity, sexuality, whatever it is, and they, they want a way to communicate that. Football is the one thing that often just binds us, connects us, bond, you know, and bonds us because you need that trust on the pitch. You know, I always say I need my teammates to want to work hard for me and vice versa. Like they know I've got their back. And that's kind of the approach we have in the locker room is that any person in the room that's suffering with something could be a loss, could be anything that we are there to support each other. And, you know, with regards to race and racism, that is a big discussion point in the game right now. Those conversations are happening. They're happening more than they've ever happened before. Personally, you know, the fact that players are coming coming to me and asking during Black History Month, I want to talk about this person. What do you think? <laughs> These aren't conversations in my you know experience that I've had that often. So there's a general interest. There's a general wanting to improve and also a general wanting to be good role models for the next generation who are watching us you know who are going is this game really for me can I participate in this sport uh, one day will I make it to the elite level is it safe at the elite level so I think um, it's really important that players do engage because we are just like everyone in society where people were affected by the same things uh, that other people go through on and off the pitch and really we have a chance to somewhat influence the game if enough of us choose to, you know, stand behind an issue. And I just think, you know, taking the knee, Black Lives Matter, things like that are ways of showing solidarity. It's not always about those that are directly affected, but it's also about good allyship. And I think that's more to the point of what we want to bring awareness to. It's really important to have good allies in the game. And I've been really fortunate to have really great people, coaches, leaders around me that I've always felt supported uh, no matter what if I was to face um, a situation like that. Michelle how do you think genuinely inclusive sport can help to benefit that wider community that isn't so engaged in sport at the moment? There's a huge role that sport can play with the, with its profile um, particularly during Covid there's not an awful lot much else on the TV than some, some of the sport that's available. Apologies for athletics, um, James. I know you're not getting to do as much as you would normally do, but there's a lot of football on TV at the moment. Um, and what that's doing is it's, um, it's it's shining a lens on some of the things that are happening in broader society. So a lot of the the racist abuse that we've seen footballers face, you know, in the last couple of weeks, as just an example, is what a lot of people are facing every single day. And because footballers have a profile. It doesn't mean that it's worse for them, but it enables the conversations to happen. You know, if it's, you know, somebody down the road that has no profile, then to an extent those those conversations don't happen in the same way. So I think that, you know, sport has that ability to start having discussions. You know, taking a knee is is a really great way of visually demonstrating that it's not okay, but it has to be so much more than that. That, you know, that rainbow laces taking a knee, you know, um, International Women's Day, all those things are, are great ways of, of raising the profile of some of the challenges that different communities face, but it has to be more than just one day and it has to be more than 
just a campaign. There has to be some systemic changes that take place. And there's benefits for sport because that means that, you know, more people see, see the, that sport can be a welcoming place for everybody. But more broadly than that, those messages are the things that get taken back into sport playgrounds. They're the things that parents start having discussions with their children about. They're, they're things that are taken into the workplace that people can start to have discussions about things that they might not have felt comfortable with. And people might not always get the words right, but that doesn't matter. That it's the fact that those discussions are happening in a really safe space. You know, there's a lot of discussion about banter in sport. None of us are saying that we want banter to go from sport. It's the, you know, the, the laughs and, and the fun and the camaraderie that you get in sport is so really so important. It's, it's one of the things that brings people into sport. But there's a real big difference between having a joke and being racist or homophobic or transphobic or anything else on top of that. that it's about seeing where the line is and people being confident enough to kind of call that in and discuss it in a, in a way that can help people understand why some of that language might not be appropriate or the impact that people's languages has had on people. So rather than, you know, James feeling that he had to try and fit into a, a non-disabled world, that actually, it, you know, see the person, um, see everything that is about that person, but don't treat them differently because of that. And I think those are kind of the key messages that sport can, can take out into society. Speaking about that opportunity to sport to have an impact on communities, on individuals, having those role models, that representation out there. James, how has being in the public eye impacted you? How have you felt as a role model? And has there been any negativity uh, from being in the public eye? Um, I feel like I've been really lucky to to kind of have a platform to really share my experiences and, and knowledge. You know, I have a very unique, I feel, luck on the world I guess you know I always say I wish I wish I could swap my eyes with somebody for a day just to just so somebody could experience it but no I've been really lucky to have the platform to kind of share that and and hopefully to inspire you know anyone with a visual impairment that that anything is possible you know like I I kind of see myself as having to be an educator of of kind of visual impairment and disability sport because because I'm in it, I, I've I've lived it, and I, I've reaped the benefits from it. So I've learned so much and gained so much from sport that I feel like people have to, you know, be involved because sport is absolutely for everyone, no matter if it's at a grassroots level or or a Paralympic Games. There's so much to sport, and I just feel really lucky that I have the opportunity to to express those feelings. In terms of any negativity, I, I've been I've been pretty lucky to be fair. You know, I released a video with the BBC a, a couple of weeks ago around uh, social distancing, and, that, and that's been really hard when you have less than five percent vision and and containing to a two meter rule. It's hard because I don't even know how far two meters is. You know, it, it's it's hard. So, in terms of the, the negative stuff I've received, is more on a personal level, like in supermarkets and on streets that you know getting too close to people, for an example, or but not knowing that. So I feel like that's the only negative in terms of social media. I've, I've been pretty lucky and I've had a pretty good representation. So I'm glad I've had the opportunity to express my kind of feelings and thoughts on situations. Um, and Anita, how about you from a, you know, a public figure perspective? Um, how, how's that felt for you? How's it shaped your career? And have you felt any negativity from press, social media? You know, 
I've been in the game when it wasn't professional before. And so the only focus I had before was just on myself and performance and being measured, you know, within my immediate sport. And now the game has grown to such a degree that the public eye and the attention is on us as individuals as well as the game. So there is a lot more interest and direct engagement on my social media platforms and things like that. And like James, you know, I'd say it's majority positive interactions on social media. Um, A lot of people know what I'm interested in and what I try to do and represent within my own platforms. And that engagement has been really positive. Of course, you get, I have had one or two negative, you know, trickle effects of, I would say, football fan culture and, and that type of thing. But on the most part, it, it is positive. And I think having been in a game where there hasn't been the same level of equality or, you know, we're fighting for racial justice or, you know, sexuality and the right representation, it's allowed me to sort of be more confident to stand for issues as well as an athlete and really recognize the power we have to send out positive messages and try to get people to interact with me personally and the game in, the, in a positive way to really drive this inclusivity message message as well. Because I think it's important. You know, I, I understand personally what the barriers are like, but, you know, there's new targets all the time. And, you know, now it's, it's transphobia and things like that. And I think it's important that we keep these discussions alive. And like Michelle has mentioned, uh, really try to put pressure as well from different angles, you know, athletes and institutions where the real change can actually happen systemically. Michelle, what do you think the impact of negativity on social media has on inclusion, on individuals, on different groups in society? So there's a there's a lot of debate about social media and the impact of social media on individuals, on communities. Um, I think it's really important that we we call it out for what it is. That in a lot of instances it's hate crime, um, and I think it's also really important that we don't just say it's social media because it's not. It's people. There are real people behind every single one of those messages, whether they hide behind a little meme or whatever their name is. It's not just about being a keyboard warrior. It's about being a person that has those opinions that they think are um, valid. And whether they've done that to try and put somebody off or because they think it's funny is irrelevant because it's the impact not just on the individual that's aimed at, but other people looking at that feed at that moment in time and then what it says about those people. So, you know, I need to talk about... Um, transphobia and sport at the moment you know particularly on on twitter the the amount of hate around the trans community and particularly trans women in sport is horrific and there's a role for social media to play in in taking bigger steps to take some of those posts down before they're even seen moderating you know who these accounts are from you know i'd love to see that you your accounts have to be verified by really allowed email addresses you know, and not hidden behind things. But there's also a role for every user of social media to consider whether it's even worth engaging with some of that. There's a time when you need to call things out, but there's a time when it's just done for impact and to, you know, get a rise out of people. And it's a really fine line between those two things. And I think the sports sector has a big role to play in that, in ensuring that they speak on behalf of the athletes, that the, the pressure isn't always put on those individuals to be 
kind of fighting the cause because they're athletes as well and they should be able to just do their job and they need to have people on their side and in their corner that can not just say, you know, just concentrate on your game, you know, don't worry about it, it's nonsense because that's far too easy to say that it is much greater than that, that we have to put the welfare support around individuals, we have to provide structures to help people to respond to issues like that where they need to um, and support them when they occur. And I think what James said earlier on is really interesting because I think when it comes to parasport, people still have that kind of oh, bless attitude that James kind of referred to before that probably not going to get a huge amount of abuse of being a para-athlete. But if you're a black athlete, then suddenly that seems to be fair game in sport for abuse on social media. If you're a woman, you know, I'm not interested in women's sport, I'm just interested in men's sport, you know, that those kind of comments, they're, they're prevalent. And they're probably not sports fans, but it's not fair to say that, oh, you're not a real sports fan because that doesn't matter because it's kind of irrelevant. That is within the sporting community. There's people looking at those feeds, there's people there that, you know, feel that they can use that, you know, 10 minutes of fame on social media to make a really abusive point. So, you know, there's a lot to be done in that space and it's a responsibility of a number of different organisations. You know, it's about education, it's about welfare support, it's about the sports sector pulling together, it's about social media platforms being more stringent on how they deal with hate. You know, you shouldn't be able to put out five racist tweets before you get a a 12-hour ban. It has to be bigger than that and it has to be more effective than that. So, Anita... Have you got any advice for organisations? How could they make their offer more inclusive generally, not just for participants, but for for volunteers, for for anyone out there who has maybe not engaged with sport at the moment? Well, I think from a football's perspective, because that's just what I'm in, is that they really should be proactive in, in actually in engaging with the communities that they serve in a way, you know, a lot of clubs are beacons of their own communities. So understanding the demographic that's around you, educating yourself, you know, as an, as an organization, how they can better interact, engage, get people in their doors and on their pitches for just fun as well. You know, it's about people getting exposure to the game. It's not always about elite sport, like Michelle mentioned, and you never know. They actually, that's what happens. You often find the diamonds in the rough just from participation. So I think that's really important and that they just, you know, language as well is often sometimes a barrier, you know, for employees as well, the way you refer to the people you work with or their relationships can often stop people from progressing or, you know, getting to the next level. So that's really important how we talk, what language are you using, learning about other cultures, really educating ourselves as a game, really, what the barriers are, understanding what they are, identifying them and proactively working um, to be inclusive. And that will be by doing that, that work first. Talking to players as well, I think, and people working within the game already who might be minority, part of minority communities and understanding, you know, what were the challenges they faced? Because I think when you get a personal experience, Mm -hmm. a shared story, that also helps people really understand, okay, this makes sense to me or I can relate or I know someone who can help. So um, that would be my advice on that. And James, the same question to you. What can sporting organisations do to, you know, open those doors more widely to be inclusive to all yeah i think it's it's looking at engaging with 
the non-sporting bubble, I think we get caught up sometimes in the sporting world that we engage people who are already involved and active within the sporting uh, community. So it's reaching out further, it's widening our net to show and highlight the benefits to sport and not just the performance side, but it's yeah, making friends, building confidence and, and things like that. So it's really highlighting them things and really engaging with those communities that are not involved in sport already. And I think from an employer's and I guess coach's perspective as well, um, is not being afraid to ask the question. I think, especially in the, in the para disability world, I think people are a bit hesitant sometimes to ask, um, well, what do you need to to be able to uh, do a task or, or to do your role within an organization? So it's being open and honest and saying, well, what do you need for you to fulfill this role? And being open and, and honest to, to communicate that so everyone can feel comfortable and, um, you know, being able to do what, the, what they do in an organization and on sport in front as well. So we mentioned COVID a couple of times. We've mentioned lockdown a couple of times. So just looking back on the last 12 months, Anita, how has COVID impacted you when it comes to to your sport? And are you seeing any differences in how women's sport has been affected compared to men's sport? Yeah, like you say, I think obviously COVID has impacted everyone significantly. Um, all our day-to-day lives have changed and as an athlete it's no different when the first lockdown happened it it really highlighted I think the inequality and resources (laughs) that we have even at the elite level of the women's game because we didn't have you know the access to equipment for example we might need to to maintain our training or to, to keep fit and then obviously with restrictions and where you can train and how long how many times you can go outside and all those things obviously impacted uh, everyone we had to adjust really quickly we didn't really know when the league would resume as well so there was a sort of mental aspect to that as well and I think the mental health side of things really has come to light you know even for myself being not able to see your family your friends who are there for you on any given day when you need that pick me up or you just need to talk about other things or just to see their faces and hug them and all of that. So yeah, it's been difficult for everyone and and myself, it's been no different, but I would say that the biggest thing as an athlete was just not being able to train in the way that we normally would, you know, football's a team sport. So part of the joy for me is being around my teammates and my coaches and having that interaction on a day-to-day basis to, to improve together, to, to support and push each other. So there was a lot more um, independent drive, you know, having to motivate yourself to do that 10K run or whatever it was to, yeah. to just keep going and to do it in a way that, you know, we don't normally train. So I'm like, oh, I have to do this much more um, running individually than I normally would when I have that kind of support network around me. But in some ways, you know, you found, I found different positives from that experience because then you realise, wow, you do have the resilience in some aspects to really push through and to really reassess your goals as well as an athlete and and how you're going to get there. And I would say, you know, for myself and my team, everyone has really tried to pull together as best we can 
and make the most of a difficult time. It's been difficult for us at you know, Villa because we're a new team, a newly promoted side. And so we don't know each other that well. It's not like we've had five seasons together and you know everyone knows what everyone's needs are and all of those things. So we've also had to be creative in how we interact and like everyone, you know, we're using online platforms for our meetings and our social hangouts just to get a bit closer to each other quicker and, and connect in a way where we can't, you know, do it physically and in, in close quarters. But yeah, it's it's a trying time. And I think for us, sport is my outlet. That's where I feel like I can express myself and let off steam. So I know it's tough for a lot of people that just do it on a recreational level. Do you really want to go out and, and meet their friends in their social circles? So it's also a privilege, actually, regardless of, you know, the different challenges to be able to play in the game that I love as my profession um, at the moment during these circumstances. Jane, similar question to you. You, you briefly touched upon how COVID had had an effect on you. Uh, but when it came to training, have you been able to be as engaged as Anita has? It's been massively difficult and, and tough, you know, and as, as, as Anita highlighted, like uh, mentally as well as as well as physically. And I tell you, I'm, I'm definitely sick of uh, Zoom quizzes. <laughs> I think we went for about 12 weeks with my mates back home in Swansea to uh, <laughs> weekly quizzes. So, but no, it's, 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 it's part of it. It is a fantastic way to stay, stay connected. But, but yeah, no, it's, it's difficult, you know, I think. All for us facilities were completely closed, especially in that summertime. And I had to go over to my to my local park to do my sessions, you know, and not quite the same as as running on an actual track. As as instead of getting chased by my training group, I was getting chased by dogs <laughs> constantly, which is which is not ideal, especially when you can't see past your nose. So it it was difficult, and it, there was so much more other factors you had to consider, which were really really challenging and. You know, I definitely feel like this last year has been a year of learning how to adapt. And, you know, especially, well, having a disability, I've tried really, I've, I've learned to adapt all my life. So it was just another, another year that things had to change and society changed completely that we had to, all of us had to learn to adapt. And I know everyone's experience of lockdown was completely different and is extremely tough for 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 everyone regardless of of what sport you do what job you do you know and it to be fair like it, it was so there's so many nice things i've seen in lockdown you know people really getting motivated and training and you know seeing people using uh wheelie bins to to prop up their weights and stuff it is really really inspiring to see people really challenging the norm to, to be able to do what they do but on a no on a sporting front i mentioned the facilities and, and and gyms like anita said like that equipment like it turned my garden into like a mini gym which is is not ideal um but for us it, it was the competitions as well you know all competitions are cancelled pretty much i had one in september and that was it and now I, I was supposed to go to to florida for a six weeks training camp and that was that was all cancelled so it was it was hard and and having you know Tokyo p- uh, postponed as well and it was almost like we were training but what were we training for and I think that was really the the kind of mental health side of things is that staying motivated our group really training group were really good and every day we kept saying to each other think of the bigger picture think of the bigger picture because this will end at some point and when we get back to some normality we will be ready 
So that was kind of our thought process throughout the whole lockdown. But it was a huge challenge. And, and I think, as Anita said, that I think we've all had to learn to become resilient. And it really has highlighted some wonderful things that people do. But I think on the other hand as well, it's probably highlighted some negativity in people as well. But yeah, it, it's been a challenge. And then I said on, on a more personal level, like for me, going to a supermarket is completely terrifying and, and knowing the rules and that kind of social aspect for me has been just as much of probably a challenge to be honest but but yeah but we're learning we're adapting and uh hopefully there'll be some kind of normality soon michelle should sporting organizations be doing more to ensure that everyone is included within these times and if so what what sort of things could they be doing yeah there's there's a lot more still to be done there's a there's a lot of work around programs you know this is our disability sport program this is our women and girls program this is our race and ethnicity program. And they're great because they are quite often an entry point. You know, James talked about, you know, being part of the, the Swansea VIPs football squad and, you know, going to a disability specific session and, you know, seeing actually I'm not the only person with a disability in the entire world. You know, that those things are so important and they can be the, the jumping off point for other opportunities in sport. But also they don't have to be that. They can be where you do your thing. You know, if you're if you're an overweight ex athlete like me, then actually those are great places to, you know, just stay connected with other people. And it, and you know, there is more to sport than just being elite athletes. Sorry, James and Leeds, but you know, at some point it's going to happen to all of us. That we've got those. You know, sport gives so much. You know, I've made friends. I've I've travelled to places that I would have never been to. Um, I've learned about discipline. I've learned about you know, so many other things that, um, and so many other people that, you know, that that's one of the huge values of sport. So, you know, yes, a, a lot of the work in the sports sector is about finding, you know, the next Nates and the next Ledger and the next Olympians and Paralympians and, you know, high level footballers, etc. But there's also an awful lot more to it than, than that. <clears throat> and all the health benefits and all the other things are equally applicable to everybody. And going back to the COVID point a little bit earlier on, you know, COVID has disproportionately disadvantaged people from particular communities and COVID has discriminated. You know, it's not, yeah, it, it's, the, it's not just, you know, everybody can get it. Of course they can, but we know that people from particular communities are more likely to be impacted more heavily by it. And if you're fitter and healthier, then your chances of getting a good outcome from COVID are so much greater. I think one of the great things that COVID has taught us is that you don't have to be in a gym or on a football pitch or on a track to be active. Um, you know, seeing some fantastic virtual programs, you know, that, a bit like Zoom quizzes. I'm sure people are a bit sick of, you know, Joe Wick's virtual PE sessions as well. But there are ways that you can do things. And, you know, if you're body conscious or you're time poor or, you you know, you can't afford to get to a leisure centre or you can't, you can't get there travel-wise, then there are things that you can do virtually. And I think that COVID has forced the sports sector to be more creative in the way that they deliver opportunities. You know, that that has been a great thing because actually maybe people have got the buzz of being involved and been a bit more active in their lounge, which might lead to something else in the future. And I hope that we don't lose that. I hope we don't go, oh, thank goodness, we can all go back to the gym now. Right, let's crack on and go back to how it was because I think we need to keep some of that as well. But I do think that also 
one of the risks of us all being in this virtual world is that I only get to see the people that are around me right now this second. You know, I get to see my dog and I get to see my partner and I don't really get to see anybody else. And because of that, I'm not learning about other people's experiences. I'm not exposed to difference in the same way unless I proactively go out and try and do that. So I, I think that, you know, there's, there's still so much. And I think, you know, podcasts like this give people an opportunity to just listen to other people's experiences, you know, realize that they're, they're not alone. And I, and I hope that the sports sector kind of takes forward some of these opportunities that are being presented as a consequence of COVID to think about everybody and, you know, maybe also just review is the system that we've got currently actually right for everybody. If we were to rebuild sport tomorrow and start from, you know, ground zero, would we build it like it is now? And the answer is probably no. So how can we keep the best bits? Because nobody wants to get rid of the best bits, you know, but and make it better. And it doesn't mean that, you know, people miss out as a consequence of that. It means that more people get an opportunity. And I think those are, those are the key bits that are, are out there for sport at the moment. A huge thank you to all of our guests for joining us today. Anita Sande. Thank you, Stephen. James Ledger. Thank you very much for having me. And Michelle Daltrey. Thanks, Steve. Thank you so much. For more information about inclusive employers offered to the sport and physical activity sector, visit inclusiveemployers.co.uk forward slash sport. That's inclusiveemployers.co.uk forward slash sport. On the next Talking Inclusion With podcast, join me, Stephen Copsey, where I'll be talking with Aminata Punji and Yasmina Malam Hassam, and we'll be looking at their personal experiences and the ongoing challenges around race and social mobility. It's going to be another great conversation with plenty of tips for employers on how to make inclusion an everyday reality. You've been listening to Talking Inclusion with Stephen Copsey. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, then please subscribe and leave a review from wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.